Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Good evening and welcome to this evening's pre-performance talk um, uh, for the Magic Flute House Notices first. But before that, I should tell you I'm Christopher Cook and I have the good fortune to be moderating, I see is the fashionable word, the conversation. Um, can I ask if you could check in your pockets and make certain that if you have mobile phones or anything else that sings, whistles, dances, jumps up and down, that you've turned it off safely, right off, not simply put it on rest and relax. Um, it still makes a strange noise, as we noticed in the auditorium last week. Um, can I also ask, tell you that we're going to record the conversations today and they'll be part of a podcast on the English National Opera website. Um, this doesn't mean that you can record them, I'm afraid, uh, nor may you take photographs in the course of the event either. And I should just alert you to the fact that behind the velvet curtains over there, there is below a bar and sometimes the revellers arrive early to revel and sometimes their rather unseemly brutish noise interferes with our higher deliberations up here. Um, I would apologise in advance if the revellers start to revel. We'll all talk louder. Um, I can't really resist this evening, beginning with a comment by Mozart himself, who once said, what's even worse than a flute? Two flutes. <laughs> the magic flute, singular, you will notice, was Mozart's last opera. Within ten weeks of its first performance in Vienna in 1791, the composer was dead. But this was also his most popular opera with some 197 performances in just two years. But then, of course, the piece was always intended to be a popular rather than a court entertainment. It's really an exotic fairy tale, uh, and its magic, in a sense, seems to anticipate what will come later within the operas of Weber and others' German Romanticism. No wonder, then, that Goethe liked this opera so much that he declared that the author had the most perfect knowledge of the art of contrast and a wonderful knack of introducing stage effects. And what stage effects are asked for in this opera? Giant snakes curling on stage at the very beginning to crush a man, birds to be caught, imprisoned, trials to go through fire, earth and water. And they're all there perhaps as a consequence of Mozart's partner in this splendid enterprise and his librettist, Emanuel Schikanade, a theatrical impresario and a performer who specialised in comic roles. Schikanade had met Mozart in Salzburg in 1780, become friendly with the Mozart family, and like Mozart, he was a Freemason, but we'll come to that bit uh, like the magic flute anon. Schikaneda intended to play Papageno, which clearly explains why the part is so generous. And we know that he took an active part in the writing of the music too. There's a nice little anecdote that's related by one of Mozart's contemporaries that says when they were rehearsing the famous Papageno, Papageno duet, it originally uh, Mozart had said they would stand still and look at each other and one would say, Papageno? And the other would say, Papagena? And it was Schikaneda who said, why don't you have a stutter in it? pa 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 gena Inspired, actually, when you think about it and when you see it working. Let me briefly, anyway, remind you what happens. The story is based on circumstances that are connected with the mysterious worship of Isis, one of the deities of ancient Egypt. Before the opera begins, Zarastra, who is the high priest of the temple of Isis, has carried off Pamina. She is the daughter of the supposedly wicked queen of the night, in order that Pamina may now be trained away from her mother in the ways of virtue and wisdom. 
In the opening scene of the opera, Tamino, a handsome Egyptian prince, is saved from the monstrous serpent that I mentioned by the queen's servants, three ladies who immediately are overwhelmed with desire for him in a very sexual sense. They show him a portrait of Pamina, and he, for his part, falls head over heels in love with the girl on the spot. This is a fairy story, remember. When the ladies tell him the story of her having been stolen by Zarastro, he does the knightly thing and vows to rescue her. Before starting on his quest, Tamino is presented with a magic flute by which he's enabled to give alarm and invoke assistance if he gets himself into trouble. While Papageno, the birdcatcher who is to accompany him on his quest, is furnished with a set of bells, which, when played, magically transform anger into mirth and provoke an irresistible desire to dance. Well, as those of you who've seen the opera before, uh, and it will be no different tonight, it all turns out well. The guy gets the girls, the guys get the girls. The wicked queen of the night is put to flight from the temple. There was a slight twist on that in tonight's production. And she seems somehow to be reconciled to Zarastro, while Tamino and Pamina are now jointly in charge of the temple and the community of Isis. We have a quartet of guests tonight to explore the magic flute. Shortly, Christopher Jacklin, who's covering the role of Papageno, tonight, and Su Jiong Ju, a new member of English National Opera's music staff, are going to sing, perform some of the music from the opera. We're going to be joined in a moment by Simon McBurney, the founding artistic director of Théâtre de Complicité, who's produced this new production of The Magic Flute. But our first guest is the theatre historian, Sarah Lenton. Will you please welcome Sarah Lenton? Sarah, someone once described the magic flute as a divine pantomime. Oh. Is that a good description? Oh, well, um, most pantos are fairy stories. And as the curtain goes up, you see a prince being attacked by a serpent. And although that can be quite frightening, uh, in the original production, the serpent was a little serpent about so long, span of my arms. Um, and it was obviously pulled on with a fishing line. So it, it wouldn't have been the most scary thing you'd ever seen. And that sets the mood of the piece as far as panto and fairies are concerned. But as you get into the piece, it's not fairy tale. Um, some of the music will suddenly go numinous, as though we're getting messages from another world. And so the fairy story is enough and was enough to entrance Mozart's little son, Carl, age seven, who thought it was a wonderful show and chattered throughout the whole show, and at the same time impressed Mozart's so-called rival, Salieri, who went the same night and said to Mozart at the end of it, that was an operoni, a great opera. So you've always got the childish and the grown-up, the fairy story, the numinous. Divine panto is good. And, and in a way, that's perhaps what we also expect of folk tales, that they are both simple but also deeply profound. Oh, yes. I mean, I think now we've all, you know, us sophisticated people of the 21st century, uh, we know there's deep structure in folk tale. But, I mean, our ancestors knew that too. Uh, a folk tale is told to describe our experience as human beings in a pleasant tale, but is also always addressing things that bother us. Um, are women to be trusted, for example, which is a very good magic flute theme? Um, what do you do with serpents? And, and how do you cope with people who've got a top F? You know, but I mean, all, 
all these very important human questions are brought up in folk tales, and it's brilliantly done in this show. Both both Schikaneda and Mozart um, had wanted to make their way to Vienna. They're there, eventually there, having been friends earlier in mm. Salzburg. Um, is there something, do you think, specifically Viennese about this particular work? Terrifically Viennese. Uh, Vienna in the 18th century, although hemmed round with secret police and wet stuff, um, was a homogeneous society, and people in Vienna never wanted to leave. Mozart never wanted to leave, never wanted to leave his little emperor. And what was so noticeable about Vienna was that the lower classes, the middle classes, and the upper classes, very clearly differentiated, got on. They went to the same entertainments together. They went to dogfights, the Advent Fair. They went to see balloons going up. They went to mass, obviously. And they went to the theatre together. And as you see Magic Flute, um, you're seeing an entertainment which spreads across society, not just little Carl and Salieri, uh, but it was there for families, uh, for the, the working class that crowded into this little suburban theatre, for the middle classes, the ones that were getting intellectual, the ones that were going to turn up as friends of Vienna one of these days, um, that the sort of people who wanted to talk about art and discuss the latest currents and political thought. And this is such a Viennese thing that, that, that these classes could happily join together and have some sort of continuum in which their society could work. And in a sense, when you put it like that, of course, they see themselves on stage yes, too. They do. Because the opera is classified in exactly the same way. Yes, and indeed Papageno, uh, who sings Austrian folk tunes and uh, dances on, is of course everybody's favourite, is actually in Viennese eyes, and we just think of him as completely lovable, and he gets you know big round at the end. But in Vienna of the period, you had to be very careful not to talk too much in public, uh, because there were the secret police out, and it was understood to be not so only ill-bred, but positively dangerous to chatter. And so it wasn't just um, a strange part of Magic Flute that discretion and silence is part of the, the brotherhood, it was also a sign of sophisticated and sensible Viennese. And Papageno instantly reveals himself as someone who's out of, out of control. <laughs> yeah. The part, of course, as we've said, was originally taken by Schikaneda, who worked on the libretto, who was closely involved in the production. What do we know about this extraordinary man? Well, pictures are sort of overweight comic. Um, so he's one of those great showmen. He always had a good part for himself. Uh, he wrote loads of libretti, and he made... I mean, he's like... Um, uh, Vincent Crummels from Nicholas Nickleby. He's, he's a theatre manager. He's that sort of guy, and he makes sure he's got good parts. Uh, he had a very sure eye for theatre. I mean, actually, anybody who's had to deal with Magic Flute in any analytic way, I think you'd agree with me, Christopher, finds Act Two um, full of what the Viennese would call schlumperi. Um, you know, it's rather sort of sloppy, and you think, how many tests is that? Haven't we seen this scene already? We've got another scene with Papageno. What is all this? Um, but it always works. And what I love about Schikaneda was he wants theatre effects. He was the one, apparently, who said to Mozart, I've got a great fire effect and a great water effect. <laughs> Could you work them in? <laughs> and wonderfully, you see, Mozart says, yeah, and makes it uh, one of the great climaxes of Act Two. So the two of them play off each other, and Schikaneda doesn't pull Mozart down, because there's a side of Mozart that loves the Papageno stuff, but he can always um, rise above it, um, not rise above it, but, you know, bring in uh, an, another element and, and, and screw up, ratchet up um, the sort of things we're getting from this piece. So it's not just the panpipes, it's the, 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 the tortures of fire and water. But both Mozart and Schikaneda, and indeed the man who will eventually publish the libretto, were all members of the same Freemasons Lodge. Yeah. Now, is, is Freemasonry important? I, yes, there were 29 Mason Lodges in Vienna, 
all Catholic, um, so uh, there wasn't any worry about free thinking, which in a very tight autocratic society like the Austro-Hungarian Empire would, would have been a very important consideration. Uh, even so, the authorities would be a bit worried about them because there were people getting together and chatting. Who knows what they're talking about? And what's going on in the Masonic lodges, it appears, in Vienna was in an enlightenment program where people were talking about um, human beings uh, as basically rational, good people. If only they could be freed from social constraints, their natural goodness would just... just automatically appear. Um, the Declaration of American Independence is a very enlightenment document, this idea that we have a right to the pursuit of happiness and liberty. And so this, these are the ideas in the Masonic lodges, and I feel this very humane enlightened tradition is very present um, in Magic Flute. Unfortunately, it has its other side. Uh, ladies aren't allowed to be Masons. That's because they're irrational, you see and emotional, and, and they need men to guide them. Uh, and that's an idea that was being bruited in the Viennese uh, lodges, particularly Mozart's, because they were wondering whether to have a female mace, uh, lodge. And that comes into the flute as well. And actually, any mason who'd been sitting in the audience, even in the overture, would have been very startled uh, to hear the three chords that you hear in the middle of the piece, da-dum, dum, da-dum, dum. Because in, um, in a Masonic initiation ritual, when you were blindfolded, that noise, bang, 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 was what you heard, and that was the knocking that started your trials as you became a Mason. So the Masons would have been startled to have heard that. They would have then clocked up, I'm sure, the use of trombones, which was thought to be a very Masonic instrument, and if they had perfect pitch, they might have noticed the overture was an E-flat major, three flats, a Masonic key. Now, I know uh, Su Jong has got some uh, refinements on, on this remark of mine, so I'll, I'll leave her to, to tell you about that, but um, there is a sense in which masonry is built into even the musical structure of the show as Mozart and Shikaneda explore some of the current concerns of their of their. Uh, contemporary lodge. Should one see the society that has eventually been evolved by the end of the opera, in which not only Tamina but Pamina too have undergone the same trials, they're united, should one see this as indeed the kind of enlightenment ideal of the rational but completely joined up society that would be possible when one restored that kind of natural sense of harmony with nature? Well, there is the sense in this show, and many directors pick this up, that we start off at night, and the night is, is ruled by the Queen of Night, in spite of the fact she's got the most wonderful starscape behind her, it's still night, glittering and beautiful but dodgy. And as we go through the trials, which is mostly done in the dark, slowly the sun comes up, which in practically all faith systems would, would give you a sense of daylight, not just supernatural light, daylight. Oh God, we've come out into the daylight. It's ordinary and real, and we're just going to be authentic, marvelous human beings. I'm, I'm sure that is built into the finale. Uh, whether one would actually want to live with the Brotherhood, uh, well, you'll decide yourself this evening. Uh, one last thing, some puzzling things. There are these three boys uh -huh. who the Queen of the Night gives basically to, to Tamino uh, and Papageno as they set out on their journeys. Do you have a, a, a handle uh, that would allow us to understand what these strange, disembodied young men are? Um, it's very noticeable that even when we're in the middle of the Kingdom of Night, 
And the three ladies are slightly panto jokes, but you know they, they, they tend to be, I wouldn't say evil, but sort of exuberant and, and very, very keen on forwarding the Queen of Knights schemes and stuff like that. Um, Tomino and Papageno say, how do we get there? How do we get to Sarastro's kingdom? And the music changes and you get plucked strings, clarinets, high bassoon. And everybody on stage is affected. This, this very simple tune starts up and they say, ah oh, yes, three boys, young but old in wisdom. And these children appear. Now this is difficult because children don't actually look young and old in wisdom, even wonderfully you know, stage kids. So they usually, I mean in many productions they'll come down from the flies at this point, um, putting their beanos under their, under their um, seats as they, as they start to sing this ethereal music. But the music sets up these kids as something grave, wise beyond their years. And this production rather cleverly points that out, but I don't think I want to give away no, uh, not, what not they a word. like. No. And, and you, you can see images from the production on the yes. screen next to me, so you can get a sense of what you're going to see later in the theatre. Mm. Sarah Lenton, thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, we're also joined, very fortunately, by Simon McBurney, who is the director of this new production. Will you welcome Simon McBurney? Simon, have you had a yen to direct Magic Flute for a long time? Now, what I have to just say is that uh, we received copies of these questions in advance, and I was very impressed by Sue's kind of very short and cogent answers, and I didn't really look at my questions, uh, except I looked at <laughs> Sue's, and I thought, those are the questions I want to answer. <laughs> Not things like, have you ever had a yen to direct an opera? Um, Not an opera, this opera. This opera, uh, um, no. <laughs> So, so, so how did the whole process begin? Well, uh, I refused to direct opera for many years until Pierre Audi, who we know in this country because he founded the Almeida uh, um, Theatre and at the time also founded one of the most important uh, contemporary opera festivals, which was quickly expunged once the Almeida became a sort of rather mainstream and slightly less interesting theatre than it was at the beginning. By less interesting, I mean taking a lot of risks and a lot of uh, new writers and very, very different things, setting people on their careers. It doesn't anymore. It just sort of confirms people. Um, uh, it does some wonderful work, but it's very different. He started that, and then he went from there to the Dutch National Opera in the 90s. He's always been a friend of mine. He's always been asking me to do opera. And so when this new opera on um, called A Dog's Heart, which was here at the ENO on Bulgakov short story came up, he persuaded me to do it. And this led on from there. I, I think I was a little bit drunk after the success of that. <laughs> and he said, and now you're going to do the magic flute. I said, yes, yes, yes. And then I thought, oh, God. Did you, from the very beginning, decide that you were not going to leave the opera in the late 18th century? Ah, yes, I do remember that question. Um, <coughs> uh, this is the last time I send you the question. Yeah, so. I, I haven't, I haven't uh, uh, prepared an answer for that, but I would say that all theatre is in the present. It's, it's the art form of the present. So, I mean, for me, setting it anywhere, it's still in the present. You know, putting on a wig doesn't mean to say you're setting it's in the 18th century, but it'll still be present. It doesn't really matter where it's set. Um, the key thing is that the, uh, the costume, each costume, is articulate about that particular character uh, and what it's doing. So one of the things that is very important for me is you understand that Tamino is a very young man, uh, you understand that Pamina is a young girl, you understand that the Queen of Night is a much older uh, uh, person. This is a very 
I mean, a very important idea. Uh, and you understand, for example, the boys are young and, as Susan was saying, and old in wisdom. They are essentially spirits. Mm-hmm. They are called Knaben, and Knaben, as a friend of mine, Penny Black, who's a specialist in uh, late 18th century Viennese German, said Knaben had a specific meaning to do with holy. It's been retranslated in modern times as good boy, which is sometimes why uh, the, the boys address as sort of boy scouts. But I think that's a misnomer. I think they, they are much more like... Uh, um, there's a very specific reason that, that, that I think they're like spirits is that they're sexless. Yeah. And one of the things you weren't talking about is sex within the uh, opera, which of course is a very uh, fashionable operatic subject and had to take some sort of place within the opera. And of course the first thing you see is that the three ladies want to to, uh, not to put too fine a point here, they want to shag Tamino. Um, and the, uh, of course, Monositas wants to, wants to uh, assault uh, Pamina. Uh, so sex is right at the forefront of it. And what you have is two young people who are on the verge of their sexuality. And the key thing about the young boys who have wisdom is they are sexless. And in the original production, it wasn't three boys, it was two boys and a girl. But the point is, you don't know because their sex has not yet come into maturity and therefore they are like Ariel. You don't know whether Ariel's a boy or a girl or, or, or who he is. He comes from somewhere else. Interesting that the, 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 the extraordinary erotic um, impulses entirely come from allies, um, either directly or in time, of the Queen of the Night. The three women who, are, uh, who work for her and Monossus who will join her uh, on the promise that she will give, give him when she wins, she hopes she will, uh, her daughter. Well, Monositos, uh, uh, to begin with, of course, is absolutely part of Sarastro's world. And, uh, but nonetheless, as a man, he has impulses. And what's, what's happening to him at the beginning? Well, uh, very simply, in any play, when something happens, unless there is a specific reference, it happens for the first time. So what I would say about Monositos is that it is the first time that this impulse has come, acro- has come over him. And the key thing is to tell us where she is at that point. And of course, it's not left there. The, the character is then developed, and because he is unable to contain his over, his sort of, you know, surging sexuality, uh, as it were, he gets, you know, necessarily he can't find a place within that society, and he eventually gets uh, 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 thrown out. But, but why should sex be important? It's because, as if you like, if you, if you like in terms of enlightenment, the physical body, uh, it's the powers of the physical body, if you like. The past is to do with animal urges, with the, uh, with the irrational things we have no control over. And, of course, the mind, therefore, is in this very, very fascinating struggle with the body um, uh, at that point uh, in, in, in philosophical history and scientific history. What is the place of the mind? And the mind, of course, can it control the body? And the idea is very much sort of like Prospero asks Ferdinand to go through some things and restrain himself in the temple. So Sarastro says to uh, um, uh, Tamino, look, if you really want her, you've got to go through all these, uh, the, these elements. And if you doubt uh, what I'm saying, it's very well, there's a climactic moment at the end of the first half where Pamina and Tamino see each other for the first time. And the first thing they do is they, oh, they physically embrace. And everyone says, what are they doing? You know, and they, this, is, this is the, this is the, what are they doing? Well, they immediately want to get to it because that's what they feel. They are acting on their feelings. And Sarastra says, well, the point is, if we're going to go forward, we have to be able to act on more than our feelings. 
It's called, of course, the magic flute. And I wondered uh, from the beginning what kind of magic you wanted to make. Well, uh, uh, there are two questions here. It's called the magic flute. Why is it called the magic flute? That's one thing. Uh, the other question, of course, what kind of magic did I want to make? Well, uh, I didn't really think about it, uh, to be honest. Uh, it just emerged as uh, each scene came up. You realized, for example, uh, that when the boys appear, it must have a quality of mystery because they are spirits. So, you know, are they of the air? Are they of the earth? And so on. Um, um, uh, uh, the magic, um, I suppose, one of the things I thought was what kind of magic, it was a very, very sophisticated theater, uh, Chicanadas. It was a bit chaotic, but it was also very sophisticated. They had sound effects. They had extraordinary flies. As you said, he had an incredible fire and water effect. He wanted to show it off. Uh, he was a great stage man. And so all of these effects were uh, the theater effects of the time. One thing I didn't want to do was to produce a kind of piece of historical tourism whereby you reproduce late 18th century stage effects. But I wanted to use effects, if you like, not effects, but ways of showing theater magic, which is part of, if you like, the argument, um, in ways that people can almost see it happening in front of them. So uh, they can see how something has happened, how a sound is made or an effect is made. If you look in the stage, you can see it's all open. And yet, the beautiful thing is when you see how it's done, and yet it's still magic. That, for me, is magic. The magic is when the imagination transports you. And I think that's part of the magic he was talking about. You, much of the drama takes place on a stage within the stage, which elevates, goes up and goes down. And uh, Is this something we should pay particular attention to? Does this space represent something particular in your feeling about the piece? Well, I mean, it's like a magic carpet, I suppose. And uh, it can change the space. Uh, there isn't anything on the stage, uh, except really that which is projected by the audience's imagination. We use light, we use a, sort of projections in different way, and yet I feel that within this production you travel a lot further than if we had sort of very heavy, realistic scenery. We're not in that age anymore. We're in another age. If you ask young people, they kind of go, what's that scenery? You know, Once they've seen the scenery, that's it. Here, what I wanted is this sense, which I believe is there in the music and in the whole idea of the opera, of a kind of fluidity, which the Viennese of the late 18th century would have experienced, because a lot of those things were new to them. If we experience the late 18th century Viennese stage machinery now, we go, that's a bit heavy, that's a bit stilted, but to try and uh, transport people so they never quite know what's going to happen. Okay, so you've got a platform, it goes up at various different uh, uh, sort of extreme angles. Now sometimes the characters are in danger. Uh, and if you're just standing, singing, oh, I'm in danger, I'm in danger, I'm in danger, uh, theatres are very, uh, very for an audience, you have a physical sensation in the theatre. It's very different to uh, other art forms. It's happening in the present. And if you tip this up at a sort of almost horrendous angle and people are clutching it and singing on it, you feel that they are in danger. And so something happens with the music. And this, this, this is, as it were, what I call the flying carpet or what we call the platform, uh, moves in very much in relation to the music. It's not to do with sort of an effect. It's to do with the music itself. <laughs> and when Pamina uh, uh, tries to kill us herself, you will see how the platform reacts as she sings more and more and more.
more. In a sense, she sings herself into a point of danger, and then the danger uh, vanishes. You've, you've lastly, you've rescued the orchestra from the pit. They sit um, well, on I mean, a the, 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 yeah, here. You say, well, there I've set it in the 18th century. <laughs> Because the, the orchestra pit only happened in the 19th century. And we're so used to going to the flute and the sort of the music. Mine is, well, it's not. It's wonderful to hear a live orchestra, but it's coming up from some sort of mysterious place. In the late 18th century, you would have seen the orchestra. And famously, Mozart played jokes by running into the orchestra and playing the glockenspiel much too fast so Schuchenade couldn't actually keep up. <laughs> you know, so there was an interrelationship between the orchestra and what went on on stage. And uh, this is my own personal feeling. is that I, I can't bear it when people sort of pretend to play a flute because we know they're not playing a flute. Mm. So uh, there's something so astonishing about that flute playing in it that I, I think it's something that the audience shouldn't have to miss, mm. the actual pleasure of hearing the flute playing coming from the flute. So Tomino, as you will see, literally calls the flute player out of the pit to play for him because he is unable to play. Mm. Simon McBurney, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, am I allowed to say one more yes, thing? Yes, of course you can. Run out of no, 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 say, 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 please. Um, just say. Okay, the, uh, I've got one minute. Um, uh, I think the other thing about the magic flute, and this I think is very important, what is it? It's about a flute that's magic, this piece. So what does that mean? Well, the magic of the flute means that the flute, when it's played, transforms people. And the glockenspiel, the little bells, they change people. And so I think that there are many different... You have to remember, seeing the magic flute, uh, that one of the reasons that it, 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 it can be problematic or that people sort of have this rather, you know, slump is the fact that there were many hands in it. There was not just Schikanaders, there was also Giesekers, of course. He wrote an enormous section, slice of the libretto. It was based on his own. He was a very famously misogynistic member of, uh, of Schikanaders' company. And then there was Mozart. Now, I think that uh, in, 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 in referring to the Freemasonry, building on what Susan's just said, in late 18th century uh, uh, Vienna, you've got, right at the heart of Europe, everyone's incredibly politically aware. You've just had the French Revolution. We've had American independence. Everything is seething. We know that the monarchy is toppling. We know that there are problems in the church. We know that everyone is thinking, what kind of world are we building? And I suppose one of the thoughts of the Enlightenment is that in order to change the world, we have to think differently. We have to change, we have to develop as human beings. We have to. Otherwise, we're just going to stay in some area of darkness. And I believe, fundamentally, that Mozart is sort of... Well, we know he's ahead of his time, although he wasn't thinking that he was writing for posterity. He was just thinking he was writing for tomorrow, and that was that. Uh, but what he is thinking about is that, uh, I believe, is that his thesis within it is the idea that music itself can change people's consciousness. And that somehow the, the exuberance and the joy and, and the depth, all the layers that Susan was talking about in the magic flute is a, is a great outburst or a, 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 an argument that in fact we can change anybody from any part of society. Music has that capacity. And of course it's an idea that's then taken up by Beethoven, of course Wagner as well, later in the 19th century. But we're touching the 19th century in 1791, that's the point. It's not really the 18th century, we're already touching the 19th century. And so the magic flute, the magic of the flute, is the magic to change people's consciousness. Simon, thank you very much. That's a wonderful introduction to... Our next two guests who are going to...
to let us hear precisely that music. Will you please welcome Su Jong Ju, who's a member of the Eno music staff, and the baritone Christopher Jacklin, who's covering the role of Papageno tonight. Will you welcome them both? Christopher, I'm going to talk to you first, and then, please, we hope you're going to sing. Um, just tell us um, who you think Papageno is. Very simply, he's the bird catcher. He's the lonely mountain man who goes out and catches birds for the queen of the night. But I think more than that, dramatically, he's this um, everyman figure, I think, in the opera. Um, he's the only normal person who reacts in normal ways to all these magic flutes and queens of the night and magic bells and everything else that goes on. He's the one that has the responses I think we all would have in those situations. So he's the voice of common sense? Possibly. I think he's the kind of visceral, immediate, unfiltered response that we'd have to those situations. Arguably, um, you know, people like uh, Zorastro and Tomino have more commonsensical, more thought-through responses. Is the comedy for him there in the music and the libretto, or do you have to find it and work hard with Simon, with the director, to, 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 to find the comic part of the role? Um, there's a lot in the script already. I mean, we've talked about Shikaneda before being very much, as, and as much as many other talents, he was a comic actor and a comic writer, and the libretto itself is funny, and it's situationally funny as well, because he's this normal guy in these bizarre situations. And there are plenty of jokes in the music as well. I mean, the, the breathless pa-pa-pa-pa-pa duet at the end, the bickering three ladies at the beginning, um, and one of the, the best juxtapositions in music, the fantastic uh, first Queen of the Night aria, followed immediately by Papageno, bound and gag, going, <laughs> trying to get Tomino to release him. Uh, can I, so perhaps it's unfair to ask you this with Simon sitting next to you, but how have the two of you worked on the role together? Um, well, actually, Simon and I haven't particularly because of the nature of the cover rehearsal process. Um, Simon has worked closely with one of the staff directors, Donna Stirrup, who has then worked with a whole group of cover cast in order to relay what's been going on the stage to what we're doing. Okay, uh, one last question. Do you really think uh, that Papageno wants to enter the temple? I think initially very vehemently not. Um, he says very strongly um, that he doesn't want to go anywhere near that place, that Zarastro is an ogre and a tiger. Um, but I think when he gets there, he's formed these friendships with Pamina and with Tamino, and he's desperate for this wife figure, this Papagena that he's envisaged. And, um, yeah, I think he thinks this might be a way of getting that. Do you want to come back? Yes, I just want to say, um, one of the things that I just wanted to say, there's a very important line... Um, uh, um, in, in the German where he's asked who he is he says ich bin ein Naturmensch ein Naturkind and this is a very specific term in the German Naturmensch, Naturkind in the late 18th century was very much bound up with people who were purely of nature who lived their lives in nature the most famous uh, uh, Naturkind of the late 18th century was Caspar Hauser, uh, who was discovered and he was unaccommodated nature. So, uh, 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 and he didn't know his mother and his father. This is exactly the same with Papageno. He doesn't know anybody. And so uh, uh, I feel that there is something completely uh, um, uh, open 
about him. He is, I mean, and the joke was that Shikaneda was in his 40s and he was overweight, despite the fact he got somebody to, to draw a very slim version of him, which is <laughs> how he wanted to be seen. But that's not true. If you look at another portrait of him at the same age, he has a wonderful, huge belly. So that, uh, uh, and, and then a 19-year-old. I mean, sometimes it's played by a little young chap and then an older chap. But I actually think that originally it is this guy who has been, as it were, wandering in nature without anybody else, totally alone. Uh, and that's part of its poignancy. What are you going to sing, Chris, first well, of all? Well, I'm going to sing the final aria, the suicide aria. And one thing I was going to say before, when we're talking about the comedy, um, and I think Simon and Rowley have obviously worked on this, the fact that actually, like a lot of comics, Papageno actually has a very depressive streak. Um, that he's upbeat and he's happy and he's funny when he's with other people, and when he's left alone, very swiftly he gets depressed. And all three of the arias have a similar uh, downward trajectory. In the last one, actually, he ends up wanting to kill himself. And I'll let you find out what happens. <laughs> no expense bed. Papagena, Papagena, Papagena Sweetest, dearest, loveliestest It's hopeless, farewell, oh my perfection For I was doomed from my conception I chattered on, chattered on The way I do Now I must pay what is due I must pay what is due since I have tasted such strong wine My luck has gone from bad to worse My heart is beating double time Hammering fast, it's fit to burst Papagena, little starling Papagena, my sweet darling when your blood and brains are seething, then it's time to give a breathing. Suicide is hard to bear, but it terminates despair. When life's hard and you can't live it, choose the first tree as your gibbet. When your plans are fall unfurled, it's good night, you cruel world. Fate has treated me so badly, not a girl to love me gladly. Women of the fairer sort, spare my life one parting thought, spare my life one parting thought. But did one of all your gender gave to me love's untold splendor? Even now I'd be your bow. Say the word, it's yes or no. Say the word, it's yes or no. No one's listening. Total silence. No one, not a murmur. All complicit in my murder. Papageno, climb the rope. Now's the hour, abandon hope. Papageno, climb the rope. Now's the hour, abandon hope. So, I'll wait a bit. Let's see who's up for it. One, last try. I will count from one, two, three. One. 
two. So I die upon a tree So I die upon a tree Now's the hour to swing and choke Gagging on my fire Joke gagging on my final joke. Christopher and Suze Young, thank you both very much indeed. Suze Young, this is a score that sometimes sounds simple, but it's deceptively simple, isn't it? This is complex, sophisticated music. Well, it is complicated and sophisticated music. Um, it's, I had a fortunate opportunity to work on Madame Butterfly earlier this season. And um, it's, it has very different challenges to that uh, score of Puccini. Um, Mozart um, has very different layers in, in its simplicity. So I found myself writing out what different instrument is playing within that simple harmony. And it, oftentimes the different instruments play different articulations. Um, so I have to note that every single time. Um, also, the drama of the music is represented in lots of different keys. So I have to make sure that I know where that happens. Um, in terms of playing the score, it is simpler than other romantic repertoire, but the overture, let's say, is not that simple to play. <laughs> so it does require a lot of work and practice. We, we, we talked earlier about the Masonic element. Yes. Um, uh, the trombones in the overture, that extraordinary rhythm that literally mm. associates. Are there other Masonic elements that, in the score that, that are obvious? When um, you... there, there are a few. Um, some of the things that Sarah mentioned earlier, I can give you an example. For example, the whole piece, the very beginning of the overture, starts with this huge E-flat major chord. Starts out. And then that rhythm, that initiation for the Mason, um, the candidates. Which comes back in the middle of the overture in its complete form. The three knocks. And then the last one. And um, the number three was very important in um, masonry um, tradition. So lots of places that Mozart put in three-part harmonies for the, the priests or the, the three boys. Um, and in the very beginning of the overture, after the slow section is over, uh, you'll hear this fast, very fast movement of the strings.
I've read an article somewhere before that it's uh, because of the masonry tradition was derived from the Middle Age stonemasons, and that's sort of the the, diff the motion that they, they will work on their stones, hammering on the stones. So things like that. And, and, and it's quite obvious from just listening to Papagena at the end of his life, possibly, um, it's kind of that Mozart very carefully characterises the principal characters musically. We, 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 we hear them very clearly, don't we? Yes, uh, yes we do. Um, Papageno, I mean, be, to, besides his... Well, Papageno is very simple, simple-natured person. Um, so most of... I guess all three of his arias, the orchestra is doubling his vocal line. Um, Queen of the Night is the probably the the, the 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 I guess the most Italianated sounding um, character. She's got lots of fast runs up and down, and of course high Fs and E's. Yeah. And Zarastro, can you? Um, Zarastro has lots of deep bass sound, and he's he's the he's the the epitome of reason, and. Um, I guess he's got lots of um, foundation works in his in his music. Um, Tamino, I get the one of the things that um, characterizes. Let's see. Oh, um, instead of Tamino, I want I want to mention Monostatos. Monostatos, um, he, whenever he appears, the, the orchestra has very busy line, and that sort of represents. Um, how he feels inside in his body and his sexual ten tension and the, the situation that he's finding himself in. Mm. Sujian, thank you very much. We have a little time. Are there any questions any of you in the audience would like to ask? There's a roving microphone. Put your hand up as you did, sir. It's coming towards you. We were lucky enough to see this You need production. to hold the microphone a little closer to your mouth. We were lucky enough to see this production in Amsterdam when it first opened we found it to be a supremely humanistic interpretation of this opera. Uh, in particular, one of the many things that we were impressed by was the development of character, over and above what one normally expects in an opera, and even in some occasions the personal psychology that has driven the character, um, which gave us a sense of the characters driving the narrative much more so than we um, are normally used to in an opera like this. Can you talk about the development of character in this particular production? I've already mentioned very briefly the, the idea of uh, Papageno. I, I think, I think uh, uh, quite often Papageno uh, in a production is played sort of very as if he's just a front cloth pantomime sort of character, very two-dimensional, essentially. Um, uh, Shikaneda was a peasant. I mean, he had a peasant accent. He wasn't a peasant, but he had a very strong peasant accent from the south of Germany. And that would have made people laugh. People would have understood that this was a real person. Uh, bird catching was actually a, a real profession. If you go to Bergamo, in the north of Bergamo, you'll see whole hills which are actually with the, the trees sort of leveled in a certain way so you can catch birds. So uh, it really is important for me, that it was a somebody fully rounded. Um, uh, but this 
one of the inspirations, I suppose, in terms of the characters or development of the characters I took was trying to uh, uh, think about The Tempest, I suppose, and thinking about Ferdinand and Miranda for Tamino and Pamina, um, uh, reading the whole libretto. It's in the entirety. It's a very, very long libretto in the original German, and you can see from the libretto that it really was not an opera but a play. Um, um, uh, you know, it was called a Singspiel, so it's a very... It is, it is a theatrical, it's a complete theatrical entity and one of the things that uh, we were very keen to do was to try and drive that through so you feel, you understand a sense of the theatre. There are things that you don't, uh, quite often don't really quite grasp such as the fact that um, uh, 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 there's a driving force from the Queen of the Night in the sense that she is... Uh, she, she, she mentions many, many times and talks a, lo a lot in the original long German libretto about her loss of power. And yet she has these incredibly powerful arias. Uh, the other thing is that, as uh, uh, Sue was talking about, is the idea of the Baroque style of the music would have suggested to the late 18th century that she was very old-fashioned, that this music was old-fashioned. For us, it's quite startling. Um, so... Uh, in her character, if you like, uh, in order to find something the late 18th century would have immediately understood, which modern audience wouldn't understand. They wouldn't get, oh, oh yeah, she's old, and she's old-fashioned because she's singing like this. We don't necessarily feel like that. So uh, we talked a lot about how do you really viscerally feel her loss of power, and a very simple, direct way in this production is that she has physically lost her power. So she is physically, as it were, crumbling as in a fairy tale, through the piece. She becomes more and more something. And if you like, in all fairy tales, people become more and more something throughout the fairy tale. Uh, and that very simple idea of that architecture of character development, of course, drove everything. Do we have another question? Anybody? No? They, they've had enough. Yes. No, no. One question there. In, um, in dis discovering the, the, the opera for yourself, what was the greatest discovery you made yourself as a director in the process of bringing this production into being? Uh, very simply, um, the, the, um, the depth of the music. You know, of course, I'd heard a magic flute many times, but when you hear it over and over and over every day, you find very much like uh, when you work with Shakespeare that you come in thinking that you know what it is and then within a very short space of time you understand, oh no, it's not, it's this. And then once you've got to that stage you go, oh no, it's not, it's this. And then you get to that stage you go, oh no, it's not, it's this. Which is why I felt passionately that I didn't want to impose a concept as the concept, as the German, uh, German directors call it, on the whole thing, but to try and sort of take away as much as possible and leave as much as possible to the audience's imaginations uh, and really bring the orchestra up so that what you are left with as best as we are able to do is something extremely where the music really speaks the word music we have one more little treat date and we have one more aria I think Okay. Uh, tell us what you're <laughs> going to sing for us this is where to sing us into the theatre Christopher Better request for the second of the arias. Okay. Um, this is um, his second aria, Hamza Act Two. It's um, he has been left alone. Tamina has been carried off into the temple, and um, he's by himself, and he's singing once again about the fact that he'd like a woman's life. <laughs> 
Um, I will not giving anything away. This happens rather differently in the show, but I'll sing a slightly more traditional version now. Just for me, no love has ever been kinder than mine for her would be. Than mine for her would be. Than mine for her would be. I'd gad about eating and drinking, a sage with no time left for thinking. I'd live like a king in disguise, in Papageno paradise. I'd live like a monarch in Mufti. I'd live like a king in disguise, in Papageno paradise. In my own paradise. In my own paradise. A wife meant just for me She would need no reminder Her love was meant for me Her love was meant for me Her love was meant for me My physical systems are failing. I'm having great problems in healing. My body is craving that bliss that comes from a lovely girl's kiss. My physical systems are failing. My body is craving that bliss that comes from a lovely girl's kiss. One beautiful kiss. A lovely girl's kiss. Oh, how I long to find her, a love meant just for me. She would need no reminder, her love was meant for me. Her love was meant for me. Her love was meant for me. Isn't there one pretty mistress Who'll save me from this awful business If there's not a girl to bewitch I might as well die in a ditch A damsel that I might be gone If there's not a girl to bewitch I might as well die in a ditch Alone in a ditch a dog in a ditch.
Ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. We've reached the end of our allotted time at last, but no noise of revellers, which is a good thing. Uh, can I thank all of you for being here, for seeming a wonderfully attentive, thoughtful audience. Also, enormous thank yous to the four people who have talked about this evening's performance you're about to see. Christopher Jacklin and Su Jong Ju for the music, to Simon McBurney, whose production it is, and to Sarah Lenton for leading us into Vienna at the end of the city. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>